Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Okay, everybody. Hi there. And welcome to the live interview recording with Dr. Mark Pimentel. We are here at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, and we're going to be talking all about hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So Dr. Pimentel is arguably one of the uh, most well-known researchers when it comes to SIBO, and we're so lucky today to have him here with us to talk about his new and exciting news around this third gas, hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So we'll get We'll just get started with this, uh, Dr. Pimentel, uh, because I know people are um, very eager to see what you have to say. If you could start off by talking about what is hydrogen sulfide SIBO? Well, um, we have a new machine that we've been validating, and actually been, it's been in development for the last three years. Uh, one of the limitations of breath testing is that we know that methane is associated with constipation. That's not new. That's been around for about 10 or 15 years. We know that hydrogen predicts some form of change or fermentation problem with the gut, but hydrogen was never proportional to the amount of symptoms. So in other words, if you had a breath test that was positive at 40 parts per million, which is positive, or 150, it really didn't make much difference. You were positive because 150 didn't have more symptoms. So we knew we were missing something, and we've been looking to try to adapt the machines to add hydrogen sulfide. Turns out we can't adapt the machines. We have to recreate a new machine, which uh, has all different internal components in order to measure all four gases, hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and carbon dioxide, to complete the breath test. There really are no other gases that are produced through fermentation, so we've now completed this and validated it which is seriously exciting. Um, What I'd like you to talk about is what are the differences between the gases? So the SIBO community know hydrogen um, and methane SIBO well. It's what we've all been tested on for many years now. Um, But how is it different if you have hydrogen sulfide? What are the mechanics behind uh, this gas? And um, are there differences in the little critters that create it? Well, there are some things I can tell you because they've been published and other things I can't, which it's, I'm always teasing because we always have new things coming. But what I will say is that hydrogen sulfide predicts or is associated with diarrhea. So what's new here is that hydrogen sulfide is fighting with the methanogens to gain access to hydrogen to produce hydrogen sulfide. And so I really, uh, uh, the, the new thing is we can now predict symptoms using the hydrogen sulfide gas 
but also is what it's going to do is set up an opportunity to look at different treatments. Treatment, because we now know if we get rid of methane, we improve constipation. Maybe if we get rid of hydrogen, we improve diarrhea. But even more important, there are patients who have what we thought was a negative breath test or a flatline breath test. And now we see that they have hydrogen sulfide. So for those of you out there who struggle with SIBO and or treat SIBO and you see these flat lines, but the patient's still complaining, we may have an answer with these new tests. Now, a burning question for everybody, Dr. Pimentel, how do you test for hydrogen sulfide SIBO? Well, you have to actually have a machine that does it. Now, as I said, it's more complicated than simply measuring hydrogen sulfide. And this is the part where I, we're going to present some of this new data and new technology that's in the instrument that gives you a more comprehensive look at the gases. Uh, can't talk much about it, but basically you're going to get a breath test that says you're either positive for hydrogen sulfide or not, and then other dynamic features. The other thing is hydrogen sulfide can't be transported very easily. So to do breath testing, it's going to require a revision of the kits and other things, which we've already sort of accomplished. And uh, so hopefully by the fall, hopefully by the end of this year, there will be a, an availability of this type of testing for everybody. Well, that would be wonderful. And, and are you able to comment yet whether that testing will be available just here in the States or whether those of us down under might be able to get access to it? Uh, where will it be? Well, uh, as I've spent the last 25 years, my, my job, as I feel my job, is to try to find things that will help people and, and get them the care that they need and the understanding. Because one of the things, as you know, We've studied IBS and SIBO for a long time, and a lot of the times these patients were dismissed or, or thought to be psychological, and I've spent my career trying to defeat that notion. Not that there isn't psychological problems in patients, but more that we can organify this. We find things that are organic, and, and we think we can treat them, and this is just another step in that direction because a lot of patients, the breath test was negative or they thought it was negative, and now we open this, this up to them as well. But more importantly, it's what, and, and this is stuff I, again, I can't talk about. There is, there's something more to this test that will even expand things further, which I'll discuss later this year. And so maybe we'll do this again. I would love that. And I know that everybody watching will be like, oh, tell me now. <laughs> um, one thing you mentioned, Dr. Pimentel, at the weekend SIBO symposium up in Portland, Oregon, was just around um, the consumption of hydrogen gas. I'd love for us to talk about the flatline breath test that uh, SIBO patients get and why that might be occurring, um, both with a methane, um, uh, if someone's got methanogens, but also if someone has hydrogen sulfide. What is actually happening to the hydrogen? Well, what's, what's exciting is that um, for the first time, we're able to see the hydrogen dynamics. So in other words, what we showed at the DDW meeting, and I represented at the, um, in Oregon, was that when you have only hydrogen on the breath test, your hydrogen is much higher than as soon as you have methane or hydrogen sulfide present, the methane is reduced or the hydrogen is reduced. And then if you have both gases, meaning hydrogen sulfide and methane, hydrogen is reduced further. Again, further supporting the notion that you can't rely on hydrogen. Hydrogen is being used by hydrogen sulfide. It's being used by methane. So hydrogen is not proportional to the amount of bugs that are in your gut because hydrogen's being eaten. And uh, now that we see hydrogen sulfide, we're able to get a better sort of quantification of things and, and, and sort of this, we call it stoichiometry. So you need five hydrogens to make one hydrogen sulfide four hydrogens to make one methane. And so you 
you're getting all that hydrogen eaten. That's why we get a flatline breath test. All the hydrogen's eaten by, in, in most cases, hydrogen sulfide because it doesn't even have methane. Something you also talked about was the length of time it actually takes to create hydrogen gas and also, also methane gas. Um, could you just elaborate or discuss that for the listeners today? Sure. So this is actually something we presented as well, is that um, when you do a breath test, we often give either glucose or lactulose. I prefer lactulose because it's more comprehensive. But when you give the sugar, the bugs receive the sugar, eat the sugar, and then start to ferment. It's like uh, making bread. So when you make bread, you put yeast in water with some sugar and let the foam create. Then you mix it with the dough. Then you wait two hours, and then you have your bread. Well, it's the same thing in the gut. You've added lactulose or glucose to the bacteria. They need to incorporate the lactulose, take it through their processes, and then spit out hydrogen. And what we've learned from fresh stool studies that it takes about 60 minutes for hydrogen to be at peak uh, uh, production. So imagine you're doing a breath test and at the end of 60 minutes, you see a rise in hydrogen. Well, that hydrogen didn't rise just then and there from encountering lactulose. It had already encountered lactulose 60 minutes earlier in order to start to see that hydrogen. So the breath test isn't telling you the point in time fermentation. It's telling you processes that already started. So that's the hydrogen side. But what your question was, well, what about methane and hydrogen sulfide? Well, that's another step ahead. So you've got lactulose. The lactulose produces hydrogen with the hydrogen producers. Then the hydrogen goes to the methane producers. Then the methane has to take, methanogens have to take it and produce methane. And that's beyond the breath test, meaning three hours later, you still haven't gotten all that methane produced because that's too far down the road in terms of time. So, which is why when we do methane or we see methane on breath tests, it's always up. So you're either methane positive or not. You don't really need lactulose. We've actually looked at this in a study where we looked at just baseline methane, forget about lactulose, forget about glucose, and that was predictive of constipation. So you don't need lactulose to say you're methane positive or not. You don't need glucose to say you're methane positive or not. And it turns out for hydrogen sulfide, it's the same as methane. It's either there or it's not there. So it makes the test a little bit, could be, could make the test a little easier. And we've been toying with the idea of spot testing or point of care testing, but we haven't gotten to there. And so that would explain why people can have that very first breath sample, uh, which is considered the baseline breath uh, in the breath test. And they can already be at 30 parts or 50 parts or even higher per million um, with their methane. It's already showing and they're thinking, but I'd, I haven't uh, drunk my lactulose or glucose solution yet. So that, that explains why that happens. It's already it's fermenting the hydrogen from yesterday or from overnight or, you know, so it's already there because those bugs are present. Well, that has answered uh, a question that I've long had. So thank you for, for answering that for me. Uh, in terms of who is producing these gases, are there particular types of organisms, bacteria or methanogens that are known to create these gases, such as who creates methane and are, there, um, are you able to identify who is creating the hydrogen sulfide? Uh, great question. So we, we've published papers to describe who is the character that's producing methane and we think it's methanobrevibacter smithii. This is an archaeal organism. Archaea, for those of you who don't know, is another branch of life. So there's eukaryotes, bacteria, and archaea. 
And they're very different than bacteria. So there's a lot of things to unpack there because, because they're not bacteria. We didn't develop antibiotics for archaea. We developed antibiotics for bacteria, which is why the methanogens are tougher. But on the hydrogen sulfide side, we have identified the organism or organisms, and we will be revealing that in the fall as well, which is good, which means that we will, uh, we will have some answers on who the characters are. And once we know the characters, we can test different treatments and try, try to improve the treatments for SIBO. I have been asked, uh, is there a specific event in the fall that you will be presenting uh, some of these new announcements um, at? Because people are wondering when they will be able to uh, tune in or, or start seeing announcements coming through. Well, research never stops in our institute and in our, in our program, and we're, we're forging ahead. But the next meeting deadline is literally in a week and a half. So we've been preparing the research abstracts for the American College of Gastroenterology meeting, which is in October. Another thing you touched on on the weekend at the SIBO symposium was around um, that methane slows tr uh, intern internal transit time, but it can also create this kind of grabbing or um, this uh, sensation where we often think that if we've got constipation, being a methane dominant person, that everything has stopped. But you actually talked about how that's actually not the case. It's more that things are kind of really wound up. Could you just talk talk to that point uh, to help uh, um, explain that for people that are watching? Yeah, so this is research from now a few years back. Um, when we put, this is that has to be animal work, unfortunately, but we put methane into a bath, an organ bath of the last part of the small bowel of of animals, and, and we see that the, the animals normally have beautiful peristalsis when you stroke the lining of the intestine. So it's like food is passing, and then you get this beautiful peristalsis. But when we put methane in the bath with oxygen, uh, we got these spasms and tightening on both sides, meaning that we were creating a restriction by having methane present. So methane was causing the intestinal muscles to be, in a sense, hyperactive, but also non-peristaltic. So we call that segmental contractions where uh, you have like something in the middle and it's squeezing the tube of toothpaste on both ends rather than on one end to get the toothpaste out. Uh, and that's how methane re uh, causes the reaction of the bowel. One of the things that I often teach the fellows in our, in our clinic is motility is never passive. So um, the, if you wanna be constipated, make you, you, you know, the gut makes you constipated. It doesn't stop moving. It slows it down. It, it creates resistances in different areas. So it's sort of like tightening a, a faucet to prevent the water from coming out. You don't open the faucet to prevent water out from coming out. You tighten the faucet. And that's what the gut does. It tightens up when you, you know, in constipation. And we think methane is a culprit in some of those patients. One question I've been asked is, if methane uh, is known to uh, cause weight gain, what does that mean for hydrogen sulfide SIBO? Is that more likely to lead to weight loss? You guys always have the smartest questions. I can't tell you, but I will tell you shortly, because uh, we do have the data on that. Um, it's interesting. Let's just say that. Uh... <laughs> methane does, sorry, but methane is associated with weight gain, it's associated with higher body weight. It's associated with higher body weight in obese people, up to 50 more pounds if you have methane. In regular people, it's associated with at least a two point BMI higher. And so that's about 15 or 20 pounds. So 
Either way, methane is, uh, seems to be associated, but it's gotta be both methane and hydrogen present. So one of the things that we found very early in the research is that it's not about having methane, it's about maximizing methane. So if you have a lot of hydrogen being produced and we can see hydrogen and we can see methane, that means you have a ton of fuel, hydrogen, and you have a ton of, meth a ton of methane being produced. Uh, and um, that's the ideal circumstance for weight gain. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, another question that uh, I get asked often is what to do with the severely underweight patient, the person that has dropped significant amount, um, amounts of weight um, and they just can't seem to put weight on. What do you do clinically with your patients who are in this zone and, and they're desperately trying to regain some lost weight? Um, it's, if weight is due to SIBO, I presume is what you're asking. Um, so we do have patients where they have weight loss associated with SIBO, but it's a dangerous thing with weight loss because weight loss usually makes the doctor think, well, maybe there's uh, cancer or there's an inflammation or there's something more serious going on. So I would caution, first of all, if there's unexplained weight loss, it needs a thorough investigation. So let's start at that place. But let's say you've done the thorough investigation. I think the point of the question is, how do you gain weight? Um, one of the reasons people lose weight in, in this situation is because they just don't want to eat or they've created these restrictions in their diet that are, you know, intense restrictions to try and keep the fermentation down, to keep the bloating down. And, and then when the overgrowth is gone, there's still a fear of eating. There's still a fear that something's going to happen. I'm going to have a sudden diarrhea attack or I'm going to be bloated and won't be able to fit in the clothing that I've just worn. So you have to work through that and that will help gain the weight. But we work with dietitians all the time to optimize calories in these, some of these restrictive diets to make sure that even though you might be choosing food items that are SIBO-friendly, you are eating enough of them that it provides you the sufficient calories without causing the bloating and distension. I, think, I hope that, that answers your question. Someone's just asked, how then do you lose weight if you've got methane and hydrogen SIBO, um, given your point just now about uh, having lots of fuel? So we're actively working and researching that area. What I can't say today, and I don't even have the data to say it, uh, is even though it's associated and even though some of the microbiome work done by others like Jeff Gordon suggests if the methanogens are there with the hydrogen producers, you, the animals gain weight, we don't know that getting rid of those methanogens means you're going to suddenly peel off 20 pounds and it will be a weight loss therapy. But we, we just can't say that today. And I, and I wouldn't dare say that because I don't want people just going out willy-nilly taking antibiotics to try and reduce weight. Because, and here's the, the, the trick, is that if animals, for example, in animal husbandry and, for, and, and um, for example, cattle farming, they give what's called STAT, subtherapeutic antibiotics for the animals. Because if you give animals low-dose antibiotics, they actually gain weight also, which is why we studied recently rifaximin and showed that rifaximin has no weight gain potential like these STAT therapies. So I would caution against uh, irresponsible use of antibiotics to try and get your methane down until we figure this out because you could actually cause an opposite effect because we don't quite understand it all yet. Let's uh, dive back into the world of hydrogen um, sulfide SIBO. Um, what are the common uh, or known symptoms uh, if you are hydrogen sulfide SIBO dominant? 
So uh, based on the breath test studies that we presented about a week and a half ago, if your hydrogen sulfide is elevated, and then you are associated or the symptoms associated with that are diarrhea, abdominal pain, and urgency, which are the typical features of, of you know, diarrhea type of IBS or diarrhea type symptoms. Um, and so, and the higher the hydrogen sulfide is, and this was really important, again, just like the methane story, the higher the methane, the more constipated people were. The higher than hydrogen sulfide, for every part per million rise in hydrogen sulfide, we saw 15 point rise in diarrhea severity. So it's proportional, higher is worse. And what about some of the other symptoms? People often complain about really rotten smelling gas um, or feeling that they smell quite uh, sulfuric. Is that part of the symptom picture? So this was, this was a question I got on the weekend as well, is that there are people who have this sulfur smell or they feel like it's a rotten egg smell. We haven't looked at whether people describe that in relationship to finding this gas. Um, and so it's an interesting question, but I don't have a good answer to say if you have that gas, that's why it smells like that. Um, we haven't done that study yet. And are there any other types of symptoms that um, you've seen can be associated with hydrogen sulfide SIBO? So you've talked about the diarrhea piece um, and you know, uh, we'll see whether the rotten, the rotten smelly farts piece is, is truly part of it. Is there anything else that we should be looking for? Well, I think we now have a complete picture because they all get, everybody gets bloated with these symptoms. So that's typical. Um, whether it's hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, or methane, everybody is bloated. But we're now able to sort out the diarrhea from the constipation, which we couldn't before. So now we have the complete package and the complete understanding, at least of the breath test, um, how that relates to the microbiome, how it relates to the uh, odor and all of that stuff. If anybody wants to join my lab to do that study, I'd be welcome to have them. With regards to the proportion of people with hydrogen SIBO, methane SIBO, hydrogen sulfide SIBO, or a mix of uh, one, two, or all three of them, you did present a really great slide um, at the SIBO symposium on the weekend. Are you able to talk through just those percentage splits that you've seen uh, in your research where people fall? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We're back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With regards to the proportion of people with hydrogen SIBO, methane SIBO, hydrogen sulfide SIBO, or a mix of 
one, two or all three of them. You did present a really great slide um, at the SIBO Symposium on the weekend. Are you able to talk through just those percentage splits that you've seen uh, in your research where people fall? Well, so that's part of the amazing thing about this is that you're not hydrogen sulfide or methane or hydrogen. There are people who have those categories and they're in those buckets, but there are many who are overlapping. And in the paper that we hope will come out shortly, uh, and we presented this, of course, two weeks ago at DDW and recently in, in Oregon, that overlap is very interesting because there are different phenotypes for each of those overlaps, and we, we're working on that. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. And, we, and now the question is, how do you treat each one and, and what is the best treatment for each one? And that those are questions that are coming, uh, or answers that are coming for those questions. And that was actually going to be my next question. What do we do to treat this, uh, this new, it's not, it's not new, it's been there for a while, but we, we just haven't been able to test for it. But how do we treat hydrogen sulfide SIBO? There's been a lot of questions about this one. Uh, that is a very good question. Um, look, the way I look at this is you can't treat what you don't know. And now that we know, we can figure out the treatments very quickly. So the answers to those questions will come very quickly. We're talking months. So I'm, I'm excited because we don't need to look for any other gases. We have a complete breath test now. And now we can have complete answers as to your profile. This is how you should be treated. This profile, this is how you should be treated. And I think those answers will come very rapid sequence over the next few months. For the people that did tune in a little late, I've seen multiple questions coming through on the stream, just people saying, how do I test for it? If you can just touch on testing, what, what the uh, avenues for testing are, where they'll be available and all the rest, because there are still people asking that, that question. Well, let, me, let me speak about that a little bit, because I had a patient in my clinic literally just yesterday, which is very frustrating because... She had a breath test that was done, and I'm not going to speak to any particular company, but had a breath test that was done, and the breath test showed methane 50 parts per million. And she had never had methane on breath tests, never. And I can tell you in 25 years, I have only seen one patient who was hydrogen all along now become methane. I've seen people where we get rid of methane and now they're hydrogen, but I've never seen the flip side. If you're methane, you tend to re relapse with methane, but... I've never seen somebody who's always been hydrogen become methane. And then suddenly she has methane. And then she did the test again, and it was methane. And then none of our breath tests here, which are calibrated three, four times a day, showed it. So we took a sample in the clinic yesterday. She has no methane. Now, what does that mean? Is the machine that she got this test on inaccurate, not properly calibrated? I have no control over that machine. I have control over our machines but I don't over that machine. And so that really alarmed me yesterday because I don't know if you're, what we're getting sometimes. And, and uh, she was ready to take a whole plethora of antibiotics and I told her she doesn't need to. Um, and she didn't even have constipation. So it didn't even make sense. So I, I'm, that, that bothered me and uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I think the most important thing is to be sure that wh whoever you're using is properly certified.
I think that's a really valid point. And just on that testing piece, um, I do see people uh, sharing their test results on many of the online forums and they're often only tested for one gas. Uh, they might only be tested for hydrogen. Um, given your comments before about that hydrogen gas, you know, is consumed by, um, you know, the other critters in the gut to produce other gases, should we be relying just on a hydrogen breath test alone? Well, that's... Um... The answer is no. In 2018, you have to at least do hydrogen and methane. The other thing is I had a patient in my clinic who asked for her money back from a service that did, it was actually a doctor's office that did hydrogen only. And she said, well, everybody can do hydrogen and methane. I'm paying the same price for your test. I want my money back because you didn't do methane. That's an extreme example. But the point is, Hydrogen tells you almost nothing except if it's more than 20, you have overgrowth, but it tells you nothing about how to treat or what's predicting the phenotype. You have to get, you have to have methane, but even more importantly, and, and soon we'll have to have hydrogen sulfide and methane because you will have an incomplete breath test in my opinion. I do look forward to that day uh, coming to us all very soon. Now let's talk about diet. Food is obviously a really big thing amongst uh, the SIBO community, what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat. Uh, have you looked at into with the, the research you've done so far around a diet for hydrogen sulfide uh, SIBO? Should we, should we, for instance, be reducing the high sulfur foods? Oh, it's another brilliant question, of course. Um, so certainly there are foods that contain sulfur and sulfates, and uh, one of those is wine. Um, and so the question is, is what we're eating promoting one type of bacteria or another? And there is some data from the 1990s that suggests that that could be true, that reducing some of those in the food could um, impact hydrogen sulfide production in the gastrointestinal tract. But now that we, we have these measures, we have the opportunity to truly test uh, the association to, to, to follow. The problem in back in the 90s is what they would do is they would look, culture the bacteria of the gut to look for these sulfate reducing organisms to see if they're reduced on a particular diet. And of course, that's a cumbersome research. But with a breath test, it's so easy. You just come in every day and change your diet and we'll see the differences and we'll, we'll uh, look for those changes uh, really quickly. Another question that uh, has been asked is what are the dangers or are there any risks for SIBO folk to be staying on a long-term uh, diet that's restricting fermentables? So a low FODMAP diet or one of the many SIBO diets that have been created. Are you seeing anything clinically with your patients, uh, those that are staying on these diets long-term? Are we having an adverse impact on the broader microbiome or our gut health in general? Okay, so there are a lot of interest in the low FODMAP diet, obviously, and some of your viewers are from Australia where the diet originated. Um, but as we continue to learn more about these restrictive diets, what we've learned is that number one, with the low FODMAP diet, diversity of the microbes change and actually are detrimentally changed in some recent studies. I don't study the low FODMAP diet in those ways, so it's not my research. These are publications that are emerging. Bill Che from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who's been sort of the US expert on the low FODMAP diet, has recently shown that three months on low FODMAP leads to um, malnutrition, certain types of malnutrition. So what we have to do is cautiously use these diets and then reintroduce foods in order to maintain the patient's safety and health. Um, and doing that under the guidance of a dietitian is probably your best bet. 
Most definitely. And I, I myself have worked with one even despite the fact that I'm such a foodie, I think it's important that we have a great dream team of health professionals that can bring their skills and expertise to the table when it comes to helping us regain our health. Um, for those patients that you see that uh, are, have tried everything, they've tried all the antibiotics, all the herbs, they've done the elemental diet, they've done the, the a low FODMAP diet or whatever, and they're just not recovering. What, what do you do with them uh, to, you know, do you have any tricks up your sleeve on how you help those patients start to um, progress forward? Um, because there are definitely the, that subset of patients out there that are in a terrible state and wondering if there is ever light at the end of the tunnel. Well, um, my career is trying to provide lights at the end of the tunnel if I can. Uh, and I think this new test provides another light. Um, will it help everybody? Of course, it's not going to help everybody. There's still some people who may be symptomatic and not even have hydrogen sulfide. And we're then going to be figuring out that little group. But methane is a real burden. Um, and let me explain this in a in different way, sort of what I said at the Oregon courses. Rifaximin has been available in the United States to treat IBS, and we know part of IBS is overgrowth. We've seen over the last decade a 30% reduction in referrals to my clinic and other tertiary care clinics for the diarrhea IBS that Rifaximin is treating. Um, there's still some, but of course, but 30% reduction. In the same period of time, we've seen 30-40% increase in referrals for the constipation side, and they're all methane positive. We have ways of treating constipation and methane, but they don't last, they don't work as well. And if anybody gets frustrated or has this resistance and it ends up on elemental and in the scenario that you painted, it's more often than not the methane producer. We need to do better there. And we've been trying to develop some products that, that help, but they've stagnated in, in the last couple of years, um, desperate to, to get something going on the methane side. There's a question here from Muhammad saying, can SIBO be healed indefinitely? What's your uh, take on that? Well, so what's interesting with, uh, we have this product that we've been working with, the SIN10, which is a lovastatin type of derivative. It's a proprietary release pattern of lovastatin. And some of the patients in that trial got rid of methane and they have not relapsed. So there is a lot of optimism, but we need to complete those trials. In another uh, instance, as I've just described, 30% of people are, you could say, cured or you could say are um, consistently in a better place that they don't need to come to tertiary care for further care. And since rifaximin has become available, although uh, it's used for DIVS based on the FDA indication, we know some of the DIVS is SIBO. There's often a lot of discussion around identifying the underlying cause of your SIBO, uh, regardless of the type of SIBO you have. How important is it that we do identify the underlying cause or causes? And, uh, and if somebody is feeling completely lost, they just have no idea, they've looked at the lists at what the known causes are, they don't feel that they identify with any of them, um, you know, should they continue to investigate to find a cause or uh, should they just be trying to treat and, uh, and carry on with life? Well, the other mission I, I set myself on is to avoid the unnecessary testing in these patients. <clears throat> I've, I use an example over and over and over again of a patient that I saw in clinic about a year and a half ago, a 25-year-old woman who has perfect DIBS, probably hydrogen at the time, SIBO. And she'd been... She's had three normal colonoscopies by the age of 25. 
And that is grossly unnecessary for her to have spent so much money and to have undergone three colonoscopies after the first is negative, somebody should have said stop. Uh, it's just shameful that, that these things happen, CAT scans, ultrasounds. So on the one hand, I like to know what's causing the SIBO. On the other hand, I'm trying to prevent all this unnecessary testing. So if you respond to SIBO treatment and you're responding brilliantly, you really shouldn't or need to have to test too much. Uh, if you don't respond or you're having uh, quick relapses, then we're looking for things like adhesions or other causes that are more mechanical or more sinister. Um, but I wouldn't, if you're responding very well, I wouldn't go all out to look for more, more um, diagnoses. Um, but again, if you have weight loss, blood in the stool, or red flags, you need more attention. You need more uh, to, to be sure that you don't have something else that's causing it. And that is such an important point that we can often get fixated on SIBO. I know I was for the first year of my treatment. I only thought about my small intestine uh, to the complete exclusion of all of the other conditions that I have going on in my body, one in which is becoming a little bit more serious these days than it used to. So, you know, I now try to take a complete whole body approach rather than just focusing on one section of my intestinal tract. Um, a, a viewer question is around the migrating motor complex and uh, and this is another part of the body that gets uh, discussed a lot and that is if we have had a um what we believe to be a damaged or um, poorly functioning migrating motor complex for many years, is there any hope that we can actually uh, restore it to its full proper functioning so this is uh, an area that we're very actively working in because um, in most cases we believe it's the migrating motor complex that's the culprit. And we think that the antibodies that develop from food poisoning, the antivinculin and anti-CDTB antibodies are causing the nerve damage. If we can lift those antibodies out or diminish those antibodies in circulation, we think the migrating motor complex will completely recover within days or weeks. So, and we have some data to demonstrate that even in humans, that if we filter the blood and get those antibodies out, the IBS is gone for a month anyways. And so we're extremely optimistic. We have good data to say that we could fix this. Fixing it is hard. We know how, we know what could be fixed. We just don't know how to fix it so easily. I can see the questions flooding through, guys. So thanks for putting all of your questions in. Uh, we will struggle to get through all of them because we are coming up to the end of our time with Dr Pimentel, but I will do my best to answer as many of them as I can. Um, another question which I'm quite interested in is, um, do you think that in the future we will swallow a pill to diagnose our SIBO and other uh, gut-related conditions? I love Australian themed questions um, because there is a capsule in Australia or developed in Australia that, that actually measures hydrogen sulfide, I believe. Um, now it does it regionally. It, I don't know how quantitative it is because I haven't seen all the specs on it, um, but it may be interesting. The problem with a pill, and, and this is more not a critic, critique of the science, but more of the practicality is how do you swallow a pill every day to check your hydrogen sulfide to see where you're at and how expensive is it? Because I know a lot of the pill technologies in the US have struggled because the capsule cost is $500 and the insurance isn't going to reimburse any of it, or they certainly won't reimburse it to the point where um, it's practical because you don't 
gain anything from it because it's too expensive. So if it's priced reasonably, at least you can measure hydrogen sulfide. The problem is the methane sensors are about the size of my hand. So you can't swallow something like that. Um, until they miniaturize that, you're never gonna get the methane detected very easily. And so to put three sensors in there would be like swallowing a football. And so we don't have a good capsule that gets the whole thing yet, unless there's an Australian who's done it already that you know of. Uh, not, not yet, but us Aussies are highly uh, creative. We're seen as one of the most innovative places on the earth. So uh, let's hope my Australian scientist friends are coming up with something. <laughs> um, in terms of, now this, I did ask you this last time I interviewed you for my podcast, but I think it's important to ask uh, you again, um, obviously, it, there's always new people listening um, and it causes a lot of frustration, anxiety and, uh, and a general feeling of uh, sadness that when people go to a gastroenterologist or another uh, medical practitioner and they kind of get laughed out of their office when they say they want to be tested for SIBO, they might be told that it's all quackery, uh, that it's not true science. Um, how should people handle doctors like that? 15 years ago, that his, was how it was in the US. Um, we've risen to those challenges. So one of the things about science, and I'm gonna go into more of the philo philosophy of all this, is that in 1999, when I said there could be an abnormal breath test in IBS patients, and maybe that's important to the pathophysiology, I didn't say SIBO is IBS and run around the whole country for 15 years. No, what I did was, then I did a double-blind randomized control trial, and then another double-blind randomized control trial, and then another double-blind randomized control trial, and then a physiology trial, and then another 100 papers after that, because you gotta keep doing it, and doing it, and doing it, and replicating it. Now, you can be stubborn as a physician, but you can't defeat science fact. Fact always wins. And science always wins. And maybe someday some of the things that I've said on this video will be proven incorrect. And I'll be the first to get on stage if the science is good to say, wow, I got that wrong. And I challenge the scientists out there to prove me wrong or to do it in a different way. But one of the frustrations we have is that some of the drugs that we have now in the US for SIBO aren't available readily in Europe, for example. And so the physicians don't have the benefit of the 15 years we've had here or the 10 years with Rifaximin and the three years of FDA approval for IBS. We're, the doctors here are completely convinced that Rifaximin is effective in a subset of IBS patients for reasons that we think could be SIBO related. Uh, and in Europe, IBS is, Rifaximin is not approved for IBS. It isn't even being looked at for IBS at this point. So European physicians don't have that luxury of an experience of 10 patients with six saying, I feel great, doctor. And that's why doctors aren't convinced in other parts of the world where they don't have access to that. And I'm sorry to make that question so long an answer, but I feel bad for the patients because the patients are suffering as a result of this. And maybe there needs to be a European champion on this, uh, sort of like I'm the champion in the US and, and trying to bring it elsewhere, but it's, it's a struggle.
It is. And, and even in Australia, where, uh, you know, we're, we're not too far behind the US in terms of our awareness and knowledge on all things SIBO, but there are still GI docs out there that are just saying, uh-uh, it's, this is not a real thing, which is really frustrating. Uh, we've got someone watching from Germany and they've said, do you know anyone in Germany that is doing anything around SIBO? Uh, they're obviously desperately looking for some support. Right. My point exactly and they can't find somebody who does this there. And, and I have a list of doctors that I keep in my back pocket for different parts of the world who understand this. But Germany, for some reason, I don't have a lot of names on that list. And, and I'm not sure why, but it's, uh, it's a problem for those people who live there. People are just wanting to know, can you um, have SIBO and not have IBS? So I guess there's a little bit of confusion around the difference between SIBO and IBS. Thanks. That's a great question. So um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is not a diagnosis. And this is a problem that, you know, if, if physicians would hear me say this in, in a lecture, they would understand it and it would help patients if they could, if they listen to this. But uh, SIBO is caused by something. If your gut is moving too slowly, you get SIBO. If your gut is blocked by an adhesion, you get SIBO. Anything that restricts the flow in the small intestine will lead to an accumulation of bacteria on all the debris and fluid that isn't draining properly. It's sort of like a plug drain. It gets stinky and smelly and, and, and full of bacteria. Same thing with your small bowel. Cirrhosis, um, pancreatic insufficiency, surgical procedures, even weight loss procedures, surgical procedures like bariatric surgery will cause SIBO because they alter the anatomy and restrict the flow. So my, my point I'm trying to make is there's a lot of reasons for SIBO, but the diagnosis is not SIBO. The diagnosis is IBS with a motility problem, and you've got SIBO as a result. The diagnosis is uh, cirrhosis, but because of the cirrhosis, you have SIBO. The diagnosis is an adhesion, and because of the adhesion, you have SIBO. So SIBO is an epiphenomenon of a you know, myriad of things that could happen. And just as a final question, uh, and I think this is a, a really uh, important one for the person that's experiencing this to understand from your viewpoint, um, people want to know, even if they're fasting and they're not eating anything, uh, they're still getting symptoms. How and why is that happening? So um, it speaks to another question that I get often too. So somebody will say to me, well, uh, I don't know what to eat. I'm not sure what's, what's causing my symptoms because one day I eat spaghetti, doesn't bother me at all. The next day I eat spaghetti, I'm so bloated and distended. I'm trying to think it's the spaghetti. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, the problem with all of that notion is that people often equate what they're feeling now to something they did within the last two hours. And it doesn't work that way. So if I eat beans two nights ago, my bacteria have been growing on those beans for two days, and now my bacteria counts are way up. Now I eat spaghetti, and I'm bloated from spaghetti. But if I eat eaten spaghetti three days ago, it wouldn't bother me. So something you ate two days ago could still be affecting how you are today. And um, knowing that one fact makes you sort of realize, wow, I mean, I'm getting it wrong. It may not be the meal I just ate. It may not be the thing I just ate. It may be something I ate three days ago. And I'm not trying to make you more crazy about looking at what you've eaten because trying to do that math gets even harder. But I, it explains to patients why they have these complaints and these complaints are, are not predictable as they would like.
Dr. Pimentel, we are uh, out of time now, and I really do appreciate you sparing uh, a few minutes with us in your incredibly busy schedule. Thank you to everybody that did submit questions. I know I haven't been able to get through all of them. We would be here for hours if we, <laughs> if we answered every single question. Uh, but thanks, Dr. Pimentel, for giving us an update on hydrogen sulfide SIBO. I do really look forward to seeing uh, your um, new announcements coming out later in this year and uh, more updates around testing, whether we need to be doing anything differently with our diet, uh, all of that new and exciting research that's coming out. So uh, thanks so much for sharing what you can share with us at this point in time. It's my pleasure. It's been a great hour. Thank you. Okay, everybody. So that wraps up the uh, webinar. Those of you that uh, signed in, you will get a recording of the webinar and a full transcription. And those of you that are watching the replay, you've got the webinar replay that you're watching now because you're watching me. Thanks, everybody. I'm Rebecca Coombs from The Healthy Gut, and I hope you enjoyed today's webinar with Dr. Mark Pimentel. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.